Amen. Well, man, it is so good to be here with you this morning. I love getting the chance to be with you, um, particularly when I get to be here on what is literally every pastor's favorite Sunday of the year. Um, You all have had an extra hour of sleep. or those of you with small kids, an extra hour of not sleep, um, an extra hour of rocking. So I'm sorry about that. It's a phase, it'll pass. Um, soon you will be getting extra sleep and it'll be awesome. But man, you guys sound great. So much to celebrate of what God is doing here through Trunk or Treat and the chance to be out in the community and rake leaves and just um, seeing you kind of press through everything that you have been confronted with over the last two years as um, churches have tried to figure out what it looks like to navigate a global pandemic and what it looks like to still invest in a community and still pursue God's mission and still love and care for one another um, in the midst of just all of the turbulence that we have uh, been through. So it really is a joy for me to be able to uh, be here. It's also a chance for uh, me to look you in the eye and just say thank you for uh, the way that you are currently caring for um, your pastor. Thank you for the way that you are loving um, Alan. He pours so much out uh, for this church. He and I get the chance to connect every Monday afternoon, and I hear week after week um, how much he loves you, how much he cares about you, how much he longs for God's best for you. And I think it is absolutely phenomenal um, that you are willing to invest in his life, that you are willing to invest in uh, your church by giving him some space just to connect with God and to connect with his family and to come back with renewed vision and renewed passion. And I think it's beautiful. And, you know, not only is Alan a partner in ministry, but he's a friend. And it means a lot to me uh, to be able to just say, thank you for loving my friend well. Um, It says a lot about you as a church. It says a lot about the leadership team that God has assembled here that as a four-year-old church, Alan can step away for a couple weeks and everything just kind of keeps moving forward. In some ways, it almost feels like things are accelerating as we head into the holidays. So I think the one thing that I would ask is that you as a congregation, not just give him time, um, but that while he's gone, that you would be diligent in your personal time with God to pray for Alan, to pray for Kim, to pray for their kids, that this is not just a breather for them, but this really becomes a significant time where God um, just pours into them and God increases in them uh, a sense of spiritual vitality, just a life and a joy in Jesus, just a life and a joy in the church, just vision for what God is asking so that when um, Alan, who already doesn't lack for passion and enthusiasm, uh, when he comes back in December, um, we are all served by the overflow of what God is doing in his heart. But what I wanted to do with our time together this morning is not just to ask you to pray for spiritual vitality in Alan's life, but really to call all of us as a church community to that sense of spiritual vitality. Because sometimes when we use a phrase like spiritual vitality, we think about that exclusively as a pastor thing, right? We think about that exclusively as a church staff kind of a thing of like, man, yeah, we need Alan to have that. We need Evan to have that. We need Nick to have that. We need the whole team that's leading the charge here to have that so that the rest of us can be kind of carried along on their spiritual coattails. But what you realize as you read the New Testament is that's not God's vision of the church at all, right? 
Thank God for uh, the men and women that he calls into leadership. Thank God for the pastors and the elders that lead the charge for the church. But all of us are meant to live each and every single day with a sense of spiritual vitality. Right? And I think that if we are honest, that has been massively challenged for all of us by the experience of the last couple of years, right? It has felt like, my goodness, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I will get back to spiritual vitality at some point. I will aim for that at some point. I like the vision, but for crying out loud, I'm just trying to navigate life. And I understand that. I've experienced a decent amount of that in my own life over the last two years. I know that's been a constant struggle for our church down in South Arlington over the last two years, but I really am praying that God could meet us here this morning and in a way that calls all of us to a sense of spiritual vitality. And to help us get there, we are going to learn from a community that was absolutely overflowing um, with life, that was absolutely overflowing with a sense of spiritual vitality. So if you brought a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and open that up to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. This is a letter written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy, kind of this little church-planting trio to the members of the church that they planted in Thessalonica. And one of the things that's interesting about this letter is it is one of the places in the New Testament where Paul is more personal uh, than anywhere else. Um, in a sense, the first three chapters of this letter really serve as an extended introduction where he is rehearsing for the Thessalonians their shared history and all of the things that they have seen God do in their midst. And he is expressing this profound sense of gratitude for them and for the influence that they've had. In doing that, in chapter one, he starts to hint, though, at the sense of spiritual vitality that exists in the church. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the CSB translation this morning, so if it ends up being a little bit different than what you're holding in your hand, I think you'll see the essence of it uh, still carries through. But um, join me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to 9. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, no problem. It's going to be up on the screen for you. And you will see the sense of vitality that's just emanating from this church as we look at just these three verses to get ourselves started. It says, as a result... You, that's the believers in Thessalonica, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. Um, and that right there, let's, let's stop there and just remind ourselves of the significance of what Paul has just said here. Um, in order to do that, we need to do just a quick recap of Paul's relationship with the church in Thessalonica. Um, before he goes to Thessalonica, immediately before that, he's in Philippi, right? That's where he gets arrested, he gets imprisoned, he's beaten for his faith, he's miraculously released along with Silas and Timothy. And the first thing they do after leaving Philippi is they go straight to 
Thessalonica. What we can tell from the book of Acts is they get about three good weeks in Thessalonica where they're able to go into the local synagogue, where they're able to share Jesus rather openly, rather publicly. Uh, But then the opposition and the persecution that they start to experience is so severe that they go into hiding. And we don't know exactly how long. If you read the chronology in the book of Acts, we get the sense that um, they're not in hiding very long. You could almost walk away from Acts feeling like maybe it's only a couple of days or so. Um, It seems like they were probably there a little bit longer. Again, nobody knows precisely how long, but there's a depth of relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians in this letter that I don't think you get after three weeks of public ministry. So they get a little bit of time in Thessalonica kind of um, ministering in secret before they ultimately get smuggled out of the city overnight. When they leave Thessalonica, they go to Berea. Um, It's like this rare moment for Paul where things actually go well. But then after Berea, he heads down to Athens, right? That's Acts 17, where he ends up arguing about the unknown God in the Oropagus, and he kind of goes up against the intellectual center of ancient Greece. And then after he's done in Athens, he goes right down to Corinth. Most scholars will tell us, and I agree, that this letter to the Thessalonians is written from Corinth. So he's writing this about a year and a half to two years after the first believers are baptized in Thessalonica. So so let's just think about that for a minute. The fact that this infant little church that's just getting started that is facing persecution so intense that Paul has to be smuggled out at night. This church has a faith that is ringing out all over the region. In a sense, the fact that they'd heard about what God was doing in the Thessalonian church in Macedonia, that's not that big a deal. Thessalonica is in the northwest corner of Greece. It's in the Macedonian region. And Thessalonica was a pretty influential city. It was very affluent. It was a port town. And it was right on um, what you may have heard in a history class, right on the Ignatian Way, essentially this 450-mile road that connected Rome in uh, the west to Constantinople in the east in modern-day Turkey. So um, it is this place that is at the intersection of a lot of the financial life of ancient Greece. So things that are going to kind of get out from Thessalonica. So no surprise that that people have heard about it in Macedonia. Achaia is a little bit more surprising because that's Southern Greece, right? That means that within a year and a half, what God is doing in Thessalonica is being talked about not only throughout Greece, but also in every place that your faith in God has gone out. That this church somehow in a year and a half has accumulated international influence. That Paul is showing up places And they're like, man, have you heard about what God is doing in Thessalonica? And Paul's like, yeah, no, I've heard. Yeah, I was was there on day one. Right? I mean, wouldn't that be crazy for you to be on vacation someday? For you to be traveling somewhere? Have somebody discover that you're a Christian? You're from Washington, D.C. And I'd be like, man, have have you heard about what God is doing at Grace Hill Church? And you're like, yeah, no, I'm I'm aware was there, wore the costume, trunk or treat, whole deal. I was in on the ground floor of something extraordinary. Now, now I wanna be be clear. 
that, you know, when we talk about a church that has international influence, you know, that connects with us, but maybe in a way that's not ultimately all that helpful, right? Because it feels like the modern American church can be obsessed at times with cultivating influence and building a platform and making sure that everybody knows just how epic our gatherings are, right? We're really good at crowd shots that make it look like, you know, there's just a sense of hype that overhangs our entire gathering, right? Everything's epic. Everybody's a legend. Everything's awesome. Everything's great, right? And we, we do it in a way that calls attention to ourselves. And that's not what's going on here in Thessalonica at, at all. Right, what's going on in Thessalonica is an actual move of God that produces such a vitality that people can't help themselves from celebrating and talking about what's happening. Now, it's interesting to me that that happened 2,000 years ago. Somehow pulled it off without Twitter. They pulled it off without Instagram. They, that happened before Facebook. And it happened in a city that was known for its affluence and its intellectual sophistication. And it happened in a day and age where the gospel was radically countercultural. In other words, it happened in a context very, very similar to what you and I live in every single day. And we tend to look at, like, man, come on, I'm just trying to follow Jesus. I'm doing it in the D.C. area, doing it in 21st century America. Come on. Like the goal is to keep the church's head above water. And I would love to remind all of us today that it is in moments like the one that you and I live in that God sometimes does his most extraordinary work. But he only does it when churches have a real sense of what spiritual vitality looks like and where it comes from. And that's what we want to talk about today. And I'll just tell you, I hope you're able to engage with today's message on two different levels. I hope in one sense, we're all able to think about what does this look like for us personally? I hope there's a sense of like, man, let's just forget everybody else in the room and let's just talk about what it would look like for us to recapture a sense of spiritual vitality in our own lives. But the mistake that we so often make in 21st century American Christianity is taking this radically individualized approach to the scripture, right? Where Paul, we almost assume this is written to an individual and it was like, okay, but feel free to pass it on to your neighbor when you're done. And that's not the reality. Paul wrote this to a church. So as much as you think about how this message impacts you personally, I would also love to invite you to just think about what would it look like to engage with some of this as a local body of believers? So when Alan comes back, it's not just that God has increased in him a sense of spiritual vitality, but he's done that in all of us. And we're like, man, come on, game on, ready, set, go. And what we're gonna see is that although we can manufacture a lot of things that sort of pass themselves off as spiritual vitality. We can create epic events and we can have, you know, an incredible sound system and a phenomenal band and a great worship gathering. And we can create a lot of things that look like vitality. True spiritual vitality can never be manufactured. It can only be received. And the text that we're going to study today as we stay in 1 Thessalonians 1 is going to show us how that happens. In some ways, it's going to be really simple. All right, it's not going to be hard to understand 
at all because I'm gonna argue that spiritual vitality comes through a synergy um, of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, right? Synergy, kind of two different things that work together to produce a greater effect. And I truly believe that what happens in Thessalonica is just this incredible synergy between the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Let me show it to you out of the text and we'll talk about why it matters so much. First Thessalonians 1, verse four and five. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, there's the first element of this, did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. So in order for us to experience spiritual vitality, we need both the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, that doctrinal truth by itself will never get the job done, that doctrinal truth is massively important, but I, I have had the privilege of being a pastor for about 18 years at this point, and I've had the chance to uh, work at a couple of different churches, I've had the chance to be with a lot of different churches, and there have been moments where I have walked into, never worked at one of these churches, but I've walked into churches where you just know that everybody has like three systematic theologies at home. You just know, like for extra credit, I could probably name which three. Um, but you're like, man, they just, everybody's got them. They're on their bookshelf. This is a church that loves doctrine, but man, it just feels spiritually dead, right? Or, or if you think I'm being hard on local churches, you know, you can go to any one of a number of universities that have academic theology departments that are totally devoid of any sense of spiritual vitality. Right, Places where people know the Bible better than Alan and I do combined. People that are like, look, you can just do it conversationally in Hebrew if you'd like. Yet, there's no sense of spiritual vitality. Yet, this idea that Paul shares in First uh, Timothy that um, the goal of doctrinal instruction is love sounds like a foreign concept. Right, so, so here's what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that we are never going to simply think ourselves into a place of spiritual vitality. It will always require the power of the Spirit of God coming alongside the doctrinal truth of the gospel. Now, power that's not tethered to sound doctrine isn't gonna get the job done either. We need to be able to bring both together because when we bring gospel and spirit into relationship with one another, the results are explosive, right? This is kind of the thesis that underlines so much of Paul's ministry. Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Many of us have heard that before because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, Right, so the gospel does have a power in and of itself, but notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I'm telling you, power of the gospel, power of the Spirit, when both of those are set loose in our hearts, it rekindles a spiritual vitality. And here's why it's so important, right? Here's why we have got to link these two things together, right? It's because the claims of the gospel are so extraordinary that we need God's help to believe them. 
right? Which sets up one of the interesting paradoxes of the Christian life, right? The claims of the gospel are so simple that a child should be able to grasp them, right? The the claims of the gospel should not be difficult for us to understand. In fact, I'm going to walk us through a couple of things in just a minute that most of us are going to be like, yeah, I got it, and yeah, I know it, and yeah, can we keep moving? But here's the trick. The goal of the Christian faith is never just intellectual assent. Right? The goal of the Christian faith is not being able to parrot back what the preacher says from up front. The Spirit of God is necessary for us to take these simple truths and actually believe them so much so that we're willing to build our lives off of them. It shouldn't take a miracle to understand the gospel, but it will always take a miracle to believe it. And I want to show you what I mean, and I want to kind of undergird this doctrinal portion of spiritual vitality by quickly looking at what it is that Paul wants these Thessalonians to know and to believe and to build their life off of, what these Thessalonians have come to know and have come to believe and are building their life off so much so that the church is coursing with life and with vitality. Right, Because I just wonder how much would it change everything if we could truly build our lives off statements like this. Number one, we are loved by God. I know, you've, you've heard it countless, countless, countless times. I grew up going to uh, private school, Catholic school in northern New York. And I remember it was run by the Christian brothers. Um, it's a cool order of guys. And one of them, Brother Stephen, made us write at the top of every paper we ever wrote, every, every homework, every everything, like, God loves me. And most of the time I was just like, yeah, whatever, God loves me, at least I'll get partial credit for that. You know, God loves me, my name is John, and have mercy on me, Lord. Um, right, it was just like, God loves me. And most times I was just like, yeah, God loves me. Boom. The older I get, the more I realize the wisdom of that man because we are intimately familiar with all of the reasons for God not to love us, right? We know ourselves better than we know anyone else. I get it. We don't know ourselves as well as we should, and so I love the community group study you guys are going through. But we're very familiar with all of the things in our life that make us unlovable. We're really aware of all of the places that we have disappointed ourselves, we're really aware of all of the insecurity and the fear and the sin and the rebellion and all of the reasons that we don't think God would want very much to do with us. Yet, Paul reminds this church in Thessalonica, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God. And I just wonder what it would do for us if we could learn to write, God loves me at the head of a journal entry that we write every single morning. Because that's how the creator of the universe feels about you. Love is not a judicial term. 
Love is not just about God having come up with a way of dealing with your sin. Love is not about God just agreeing to tolerate you because you believe the right things and go to the right church. Love is about the fact that the creator of the heaven and the earth delights in you. That the God of heaven knows you and he cares about you. That the God of heaven enjoys spending time with you. That you are so much more to him than just a problem to be solved. You are so much more to him than somebody he can use to advance his purposes. You are this beloved image bearer made to resemble your creator, made with relational capacity, made with the ability to create, made with the ability to connect with others, made with the ability to love, and that the God of heaven cares about you. Right? Think, think about how you feel when you're at your best, you're rested and your spouse walks into the room or your best friend walks in to the room or your kids walk into the room or your parents walk into the room. And there's just this sense of love in your heart. Like, man, I just love these kids. Right? I'm so grateful that I get to know them. I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of what God's doing in their life. I mean, I love being around them most of the time. You just got to keep it real. See, God, God doesn't have them most of the time. You know, he's not like, yes, I love you, <laughs> except for Tuesdays. We've all seen how you behave in that meeting. Um, no, God's like, even when you're at your worst, I couldn't love you anymore. Even when you're at your most unlovable, God cares about you. I just wonder, what would that do for our vitality if we were able to walk into the week believing that? Now, of course, you're like, whoa, okay, hang, hang on. You just sort of, you know, did a little sidestep right there of like, you know, we know all the reasons God shouldn't love us, but he still does. Like, hang on, that sets off some alarms. Like, how does that work for God? Well, you know, most of us, if you've been going to this church for a while, you know that God's love for us is not based on what we do or how innately lovable we are. It's based on what Christ has done for us on the wood of the cross, right? That not only are we loved by God, but we've been rescued by Jesus, right? That's where he kind of ends this first two-paragraph introduction, right? Verse 10, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That yes, God is infinitely loving, that God is love, but he is also holy and just. And he hates sin and he hates the ways we have damaged each other and the ways that we have damaged the world that God has created, right? That's a problem, that's a concept that we never have a problem with when somebody sins against us. Right? When somebody sins against us, we're all about a holy and just God. And we're all about a God who's going to settle the score in eternity. But when we're aware of our own sin, it causes real problems. But of course, when we're mindful of the cross, both of those reactions get morphed. 
When we realize that the God of heaven loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die in our place so that we could be adopted into the family of God. See, it's every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth is made in the image of God. But it's only those of us who have come to faith in Jesus who are able to call God Father. And are only those who have come to faith in Jesus who are called the children of God. But God calls us to be sons and daughters because he has decisively dealt with all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our rebellion. He sent Jesus, not just to demonstrate his love for us, but he sent Jesus to rescue us from the hell that we have created here on earth, to rescue us from eternal separation from God to rescue us from the worst impulses that live inside each one of us. And now you and I have the freedom and the joy of living like a rescued people, which we tend to just reduce to doctrinal truth. But I started thinking about it in a slightly different way in the end of August, right? If you go back just a couple of months and Remember those weeks where we were all so um, moved and concerned by what was happening in Afghanistan as the country was falling so rapidly and Kabul was just falling day by day by day. And there were those images that we could see online or see on the evening news of people trying with everything they had to get to the Kabul airport in the hope that they would be able to escape and the hope that they could get out. And I found myself wondering, what would it have felt like to have been on one of those planes on the way out of Kabul? What would it have felt like to be on the last plane on the way out? To have had this sense that you made it. To sit there knowing that somebody came for you to do for you what you never could have done on your own so that you were now on your way to a whole new life. Imagine the joy, just the overwhelming sense of freedom and life that you would have felt on that plane. The sense of I can't believe it. We live in a day and age where it's worth inserting the disclaimer that somehow linking the rescuing work of the Son of God on the cross and the rescuing work of the U.S. military is something you've got to be careful with. But let's not overthink points that are designed to stir affection for Jesus in our heart. There would have been such joy on that plane because I'm free. I made it. That's what should characterize our lives as Christians. Right, that we feel this freedom of having been rescued. Right? But, but if you were tracking with that story, you know, I, I ended it in a particular way. So, you know, somebody's coming, I'm on my way to a whole new life. Right? There's a reminder in the scripture that we are being transformed by Jesus. Because I wonder sometimes if our spiritual vitality doesn't suffer because we're great with, with celebrating the love of God, We're grateful celebrating the rescue of God, but then we end up settling for a life that, truth be told, doesn't feel like it's a whole new life. We we just 
kind of look back and are like, oh yeah, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, and it's your breath in my lungs, and yay. But there should be a sense in each one of us If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the scripture is really clear that the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God lives inside of you. And that spirit has gone to work on the very core of who you are to transform you into the image and the likeness of Christ. That we have made this journey with the Thessalonians, verse nine, we have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That now our relationship with God reorients our entire lives. It shifts around what we value. It shifts around how we interact with Others. It shifts around the way we respond to pain and suffering in our world. That God is very much at work in our lives, redrawing our blueprint for life. Right? And that may be the question that the church needs to wrestle with more than any other in this day and age. Right? Are we really being transformed? Or have we just settled for doctrinal clarity? Again, I'm all for doctrine, right? Don't go text Alan and be like, wow, well, come back soon. You know, tired of the heretics. <laughs> Miss you. No, doctrine is good. But doctrine that doesn't lead to transformation is dead, When the truths about God are joined by the power of the Spirit of God, we all have this sense that God is at work in us. He's not always at work at the way we want him to. He's rarely, at least in my life, at work at the speed that I wish he was. But we're able to point back and say, no, I know that God is at work in my life. Or maybe one of the greatest gifts we can give each other in the context of a local church, in the context of a community group, is being able to call out the ways that we see the work of God in each other's lives. Because it can be really hard to believe it of ourselves. And maybe the greatest gift you could give somebody this week is say, hey, I just want you to know how I see God at work in your life. There is a little more peace and a little less anxiety than there was two years ago in you. And I see the way that you are serving your wife with gentleness these days. And that wasn't in you a couple years ago. And I see the way that you're caring for your kids. And man, you didn't used to do it quite like that. Man, I'm really proud of the work God's doing in you. I'm really excited to be in community where somebody like you, where God is changing you, man. If we know that we're loved and we know that we've been rescued and we really are being transformed, Paul just adds in one more thing. He's like, by the way, when all that's happening, we live with joyful anticipation, right? Verse 10, wait for the sun from heaven. Part of 1 Thessalonians, the reason you don't hear a lot of sermons about 1 Thessalonians is give him a couple more chapters and he gets into things like, you know, the return of Christ and the rapture and all that kind of stuff that causes pastors to kind of pump the brakes and be like, okay, let's do a series on something else. And that's fair because there's a lot of questions about where Paul goes next. But the basic teaching of the Christian church has not only been that Jesus came once 2,000 years ago, but that Jesus will come back again and that he will bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth and you and I will rule and reign with him and you and I will experience the world as it was always meant to be. 
that God will be with us and we will be with him, that it will be a world where there is no more COVID, a world where there is no more cancer, a world where there are no abused children. It'll be a world without racism, fear, or poverty. It'll be a world without death. It will be a world where God himself will come and he will wipe every tear from your eye. And you will know the perfect love of God. And every single day that you and I complete one more lap around the sun, every year we complete one more lap around the sun, we are that much closer to the day where we are perfectly with God. And if we can grab hold of those things, oh man, oh man, you can see what it would do, right? You see the ways that it would transform your experience of the next seven days. And here's the thing. We wouldn't just walk out feeling better about God because that's not the ultimate mark of spiritual vitality. Right? It's not just our own personal affection for God. The ultimate mark of spiritual vitality is that we live in a community that's characterized by conversion and mission. Right, Verse 6 and 7, and then we're going to come and close in one last song. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy say to these Thessalonian believers, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message, conversion, with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia mission. There weren't a whole lot of believers in Macedonia and Achaia before Paul showed up, certainly, and before this church started to live on mission with God. Right, so I, I, I'm not calling us this morning just to an increased sense of liking church. Right? The goal of spiritual vitality is not just for us to enjoy being Christian more, although that's part of it for sure. It's for us to be so satisfied by God, to, for us to be so in love with God, for us to be so filled with the power of the Spirit, for us to be so freed by the truth of the gospel that we can't help but figure out what our part is in God's mission and how it is that the God of heaven wants to allow us the privilege of being a part of his work in this world. Right? Spiritual vitality isn't about what a worship gathering looks like on Instagram. It's about what the church looks like when we all head back to our normal lives this afternoon. It's about how we choose to love and serve and sacrifice when we go to work tomorrow. It's about whether or not we are willing to rise up into our calling and be ambassadors of Christ whether we're going to come into Thanksgiving, which is profoundly challenging for some of us, and say, you know what, I don't know how these next couple days are going to go on the family level, but I know that I am loved by God. And I know that I have been rescued from Jesus, by Jesus. You may try to throw my past at me, but I'm just telling you, I am rescued by Jesus. And God is changing my life. And one day I'm going to be with him and he's going to be with me and it's going to be amazing. So how can I love you today? How can I serve you? How can I show you just a glimpse of the love of Christ? Because that's spiritual vitality. 
Spiritual vitality is when we choose to join the mission of God. Right? The Thessalonian church didn't get their sense of vitality from their leaders. They got it because they understood the gospel and they experienced the power of the Spirit. And that's available to you and me right now. It's available to us today that we could be a part of something like that in our day and age. That's what I want. That's what I pray for my life. It's what I pray for Alan. It's what I pray for you. It's what I pray for our church. Let's do that together now. Father, would you come and do, even in these moments, God, what my words could never do? God, I can try, I hope, faithfully to paint a picture of where vitality comes from and what it looks like, but God, only you can bring it. God, the last thing any of us need today is one more talk about something that we're not currently experiencing. So Jesus, would you do something in each of our hearts to ensure that that's not the case? Would you do something right now that reminds us that we are loved by you? Would you capture our heart with the beauty of the cross? Would you just show us how you're at work in us? Will you give us an anticipation for the day when we will be with you perfectly? Father, I'm so grateful for this church. And I pray now in the name of Jesus for every person here, for every person joining online, that you would touch our hearts. That you would help us respond to your love for us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.